Valerie is my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, filmmaker Jason Jude Hill tells us how he may hate the song Ring of Fire, but sometimes the song you hate leads you to the person you love. At the time, when I was working on that production, you have to understand, my taste of music was relegated to Broadway musicals, how refreshing, (laughs) and the standard anthems from various bands that anyone going to college in the second half of the 90s must relate to. Tori Amos, Alanis Morissette, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, and Oasis. Not Johnny Cash not country, not rock music. I had no interest in pop music or in boy bands other than the aesthetics. But first. Mad Men is about to mad end. Okay, that was weak. That was. But yeah, it's weird, too, to think of, because I've been thinking of it in terms of, well, this show went on the air in 2007, which for me was two apartments, and like that was five jobs ago. So it's, it's weird to think of it that way, but I will miss it. I'll say I'm not looking forward to the series finale in May, because if there's one thing I actually really don't like, it's series finales. I watch them, but I only watch them once, and then I, I forget they exist. It's just too sad. I, I'll watch the entire series of cheers over and over, but then not ever watch the final episode. I just don't, I don't like to think of this world I love so much as, as ended, that it just should be going on forever and ever. So I'll watch the end, but I'm not excited about it. But I am excited to see the Mad Men exhibit at our sometimes venue, the Museum of the Moving Image. There is a huge Mad Men exhibit over there until, it's going on now. I think it's going until mid-June. And it's replicas of sets, it's original costumes, even Matthew Weiner's notes on characters and story. And I'm, I'm hoping, too, that includes some of his notes on the music. Oh, Mad Men does music, how Chrissy Hine does bangs so really well. Aside of the fact that this is the show responsible for the massive coup of someone finally being able to license a Beatles song when Don listens to uh, Tomorrow Never Knows at the end of an episode in season five. But regardless, it's a show that's very smart in how it uses music, sparingly, deliberately, on a feeling or a mood rather than just a relevant lyric. The fact that the show takes place in the 60s, it would be so easy to beat us over the head with the fact that this is the 60s and play Bob Dylan or the Cow Sills every four minutes. But they don't. It's really great. And they use songs internally within some of the episodes, but their best picks are the songs that they play at the end of each episode. And as for how they go about selecting those, I read that Matthew Weiner lets everyone have access to his iPod, so it's more about everyone's emotional response to a particular song and how it would fit with the mood of an episode, rather than, you know, something like, well, Cherish would just be a perfect button on this show that's generally about longing, so let's just play Cherish. And another way 
They play it smart. The music that they use in general, well-rounded. Again, it would be easy to think 60s and immediately think psychedelia or the British invasion. But it's more eclectic than that. One carefully selected song for the end of each episode beautifully helps tell the full story of the entire decade and all of the different people who lived it. The late 60s is as much about my way as it was about all along the Watchtower. Anyway, it's good stuff, and I'm sure you know that. So, the last few episodes of Mad Men start Sunday, and I personally am super curious to see if the show does jump ahead in time. The last episode from last spring, whatever that's called, series half finale, I don't even know what to do with these split seasons. I hate them. Anyway, that last episode is in 1969, summer of 1969, because it's the moon landing in that episode, and it kind of felt like an end to something. Maybe they couldn't have ended the whole series there, but it felt like an end to a few stories. So maybe this would be a good place for a coda or a tag. A where are they now when now is 1976, because that's the other thing. The trailer that they released for this half season is scored with Love Hangover, which was released in 1976. So is that what they're saying? That these last seven episodes are going to take place in 1976? Maybe, maybe, maybe. And la 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 la, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear about how that song in that trailer doesn't mean anything because they've sometimes used anachronistic songs in episodes. Like in season one, they used the Decemberists, the Infanta, over a montage of women getting dressed. Or they've even used anachronistic songs in other trailers. The one for the season seven, part one, they used The Man Who Sold the World, which wasn't released until almost the end of 1970. And that season still took place in 1969. But just, 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 I want this. Let me have this for another few days. Let me imagine that it's going to happen and that the show is, oh my God, going to jump ahead to this magical year in time. And if, 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 if the show takes place in 1976, then my question is, what songs are going to end these final seven episodes. That's my favorite part of every episode. The song at the end. What's the song at the end going to be? Because there is. There's the story's end. And then there's the song playing, which is like the emotional reverb onto the end. And then you get to the emotional end. So what 70s music could possibly wind up in that position in the last seven episodes? All right. So without writing the show, because I could not possibly even begin to try that, and because I can't handle the pressure of having to name a song for the series finale, I so cannot pull off a Breathe Me on Six Feet Under. So anyway, without doing that, here, my 70s music wish list for these last seven episodes. You know, some Mad Men musical fan fiction. Yeah, it's hot and sexy and taboo for the time since Brother Louie is about an interracial love affair. And and if the show didn't deal with interracial stuff that much, they did maybe sometimes touch on other love and sex taboos. Like in every episode, all the time, always, threesomes, cruising in the ramble, Keeping Linda Cardellini locked up in a hotel room. I don't see the 70s arriving and this just like stopping. It is the 70s. It's the decade of Deep Throat and Catholic high school girls in trouble in the Kentucky Fried movie. So this song works. Suffragette City for the ladies. 
Betty, Sally, Joan, Peggy, Megan, really, this would work for any of them. They all, in their own way, represent an arm of the feminist movement in some way. Huh. Though now, I'm trying to decide of all of them on the show who most closely represents a total blam blam. No, I can't decide. Trying to decide which madman woman is the most total blam blam is like deciding your favorite child. Like I was really going to make a list like this and not include Earth, Wind and Fire. But that aside, get away. You buck all that's weighing you down. You give into the moment. You follow a new direction. Maybe you do all of this naked. So in other words, Roger Sterling on LSD for like the past two seasons now. Yeah, this one's his jam. Whatever story-wise, I'm just saying, how can you have a show that takes place in New York City in the mid-70s and not include Patti Smith? I mean, Welcome Back Cotter managed. But still, you can just feel this city at that time through this song. And unfortunately, that's as close as I am ever going to get to being in New York in the 70s, for real. I am obsessed with it. I am. And enough so that if I do get to go somewhere when I die... I want it to be New York City around 1978. And then that's where I'll just be forever and I'll ride out eternity, just me and my heavy bangs filling up my Nova at Gasseteria. A great Peggy song. Oh, I just see her getting shit on by Ted one more damn time. Like, even when Peggy and Ted didn't live in the same physical town, like in the last season or two, The industry still wasn't big enough for them both. I mean it. She's going to bite a hole in Ted's face. Also, I just love the band Sparks. I think people tend to forget about Sparks. And I know that in the past, Mad Men has thrown in a more obscure song that, like, forced me to shush the room while I tried to Shazam my TV. This can be that. All right, I don't know. I'm not sure how Grazing in the Grass would fit story-wise, but this is more a style choice, I think. I just love when a song that's filled with optimism scores a scene that is completely devoid of that. This show does it a lot, and of course, now I can't think of an example of it in the moment. The only example I can think of is that time on Eastbound and Down when Jason Sudeikis' character ODs while Walk Like an Egyptian is playing. I'm just saying Mad Men episodes end on a lot of weird, everything is not okay, we are all going to die tomorrow notes, and what better to color that than with I Can Dig It. Like the pine trees lining the winding road. So I was like, what's the 70s equivalent of them using Sinatra's My Way from the early part of season seven? And then I remembered the time I saw Lena Horne saying I got a name on The Muppet Show, and I was like, well, I think it's this. Also, P.S., Mad Men is great at the cover song you didn't expect, One Two Punch. Last season, Vanilla Fudge covering You Keep Me Hanging On. I did not see that coming. And it was the fist in the face. And all right, am I saying that Lena Horne covering Jim Croce is a fist in the face? No, but neither were the 70s. I almost used this one, too. You know, I was playing these songs for my boyfriend, and when we got to You'll Never Find, he was like, I had a Lou Rawls tape when I was a kid. I 
didn't understand it. And I was like, why? And he's like, because it was sex music. Yeah, well, that makes sense then. But hey, if you want to hear all of the songs that I was considering for this little foray into musical fan fiction, get on Spotify and look for the playlist called Mad Men in the 70s Soundtrack Series. And it's all right there. Each and every moment of what the hell was I thinking? All right. Our story for this episode is from filmmaker Jason Jude Hill of Grumpy Films. Check out their 100-episode series, Short Shorts, which was named one of the best gay web series you have never heard of by the Huffington Post. So this is Jason's story about how he really does hate the song Ring of Fire, but sometimes a song you hate can lead you to the person you love. I would like to start off by telling everyone that I absolutely hate that song. I'm I'm sorry. The moment I hear that mariachi band start up, I groan. I can't stand it. It's a repetitive tune, and it's dime store sappy lyrics. Some people say the lyrics could be interpreted that Johnny Cash is singing about vaginas, which I have nothing against but no personal interest in. The worst part is that every time I hear this song, no matter where I am, I am instantly transported back to a particular place and time. At the turn of the millennia, I was in my early 20s and recently had moved to Chicago. I was surrounded by a new life with startup friendships and a chance at rekindling old ones. New apartments and a new period in a city that I had lived in before. The 90s were my college and high school years, and I ended that decade with a bang, living out most of 99 as as what I refer to as my magical year of cocaine. (laughs) I was living in a faraway southern state, again, with startup friendships in a new city and a lot of drugs. I'm sure that I was just getting it out of my system as it didn't take me long to really sober up and bound again for the Midwest and in a weird way, home, leaving my youth forever in South Carolina. I had moved to Chicago to work with friends in the storefront's theater scene and on my first day, after spending the required stopover at home in Michigan, thanking my mother for the loan and for saving me, did I find myself out with a friend who was working with a small company on a production, and that evening they were starting to hang lights and prep the set. I arrived in the city at 3 p.m. and by 8 o'clock was hanging lights and feeling a little bit of my old sober self. A few months later, weeks after the year 2000 began, I was working as a set designer with this same theater company. Believe me, I was desperate for the work. I've done a lot in the theater and set design is not one of them. Either way, it seemed that I would pull it off. The production was a new play focusing on a school shooting in a small Midwestern town. This was in the, you know, in the wake of Columbine at the time. And I had spent days creating a false proscenium out of oversized school supplies, pencils, rulers, protractors, which were made out of large sheets of styrofoam covered in plaster bandages. It was a mess, but I flexed those jeans that made me crafty and good with a glue gun. (laughs) Production meetings were as organized as they could be by a group of 20-somethings trying to do something new in the world of theater in the north side of Chicago. I quickly became friendly with the sound designer who had a wry sense of wit, was incredibly intelligent, and not to mention, really cute. I was sledding it around at the time, juggling a couple of guys I had met, only interested in them enough to kill time as I looked for somebody more interesting. Our first date is a story of of its own, but I spent the production period getting to know him and feeling a connection that was finally worth investing in. 
His sound plot for the show included pre-show music made up of children's instructional records, tying shoes, brushing teeth, and cartoon themes from various television shows of the past four decades. However, the thing that stuck out to me and what I really remember now, 15 years later, was the song that he used for most of the transitions within the show, Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire. The show in the end was terrible. <laughs> and, all, and although a good effort by all, other than the school supplies, I remember nothing of the show other than that song. At the time, I think the song was added as a personal joke or a dig at somebody or someone, but its inclusion stuck with me. Truthfully, it was the first time I had ever sat down and listened to a Johnny Cash song. I'll take a moment to remind you that I don't even like the song. I'm not sure if it was the repetition of hearing it during tech week of the show or the full month of performance, but the song stuck with me, and I feel I've heard it enough for a lifetime. At the time, when I was working on that production, you have to understand, my taste of music was relegated to Broadway musicals, how refreshing, and the standard anthems from various bands that anyone going to college in the second half of the 90s must relate to. Tori Amos, Alanis Morissette, Nine Inch Nails, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, and Oasis. Not Johnny Cash. Not country, not rock music, certainly not hip-hop or rap. I had no interest in pop music or in boy bands other than the aesthetics. I could tell you, I could tell you all about Guys and Dolls and Hello Dolly and maybe a little bit of Golden Girls or even a little bit of Joni Mitchell, but at the time, Sunday Morning Coming Down and Folsom Prison Blues weren't even on my radar, let alone in my musical lexicon. I was amazed at the choice of song for the show. My colleague's choice seemed well thought out. The song's lyrics of obsession and longing somehow fit the show. It was a great artistic choice. This compelled me to speak to my colleague slash current lover. How did he come to Johnny Cash? It seemed like a, such a bold musical choice to this novice music fan. I mean, I knew he could go to his local Tower Records or Coconuts and buy the CD that contained that song, but that really wasn't what I was curious about. How did he find it? Johnny Cash somehow had made it into this guy's brain, but not mine. We were the same age. I'm slightly, only slightly older. He was in the theater. I was in the theater. We were both gay. How did he come to choose this song? He wasn't a strict country music fan. My colleague lover had admitted in production meetings and on dates that he was a bit of an audiophile and had garnered a large musical collection over the years. Being someone who specifically collects music, he listened to Johnny Cash along the way when he purchased the CD at the local Borders Books and Music. No, I ripped it off vinyl. Vinyl? Yeah, vinyl. You know, a record? <laughs> now, yes, of course, I knew what a record was. I vividly remember playing some of my mother's records on the turntable of my first stereo system because the phonograph was included and made little to no sense to me, but I liked the big shiny discs of Anne Murray, Elton John, and Barbra Streisand, specifically the song and album Guilty with Barry Gibb, but not Johnny Cash. And surely not Johnny Cash on record. I mean, excuse me, vinyl. <laughs> I feel like in those moments, the song Ring of Fire was unlocking a door. A door to a music lover part of me that I had no idea was there. Can I see it? Sure. My lover slash new friend in music took me to his place to show me his record. I remember seeing a glimpse of his collection the first time I was at his apartment, but we were nervous and late for dinner. His collection at first could only be referred to as 
colossal. I had never seen so many records in my entire life. I mean, excuse me, vinyls. There were thousands upon thousands stacked on several racks that took up most of the room. He went to a shelf, thumbed through until he found Ring of Fire, the best of Johnny Cash, the 16th album by Johnny Cash. There it was. But I'll be honest, I didn't really care about the song anymore. The song became insignificant. It was this collection, this collection of albums that seemed to me all of the music of the entire world. There were so many possibilities, it seemed. My eyes were opening to how important music, not just the Broadway tune or the grunge anthem, but any music, obviously it was important. Look at how much there is, and this collection was just a representation of everything I had to learn. I mean, Jesus, if I didn't know Johnny Cash, who else hadn't I heard of? Easy, the collection told me. Nancy Wilson, Joe Tex, Bobby Darin, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, Jackie Wilson, Leon Redbone, The Moody Blues, Miles Davis, Ray Conniff, Julie London, Blossom Deary, Earth, Wind and Fire, Odyssey, Nielsen, Lou Rawls, Sergio Mendez in Brazil 66, 24 Pieces of Gold, Marty Gold and his orchestra, Ike and Tina Turner, Gladys Knight and the Pips, The Beatles, I had never seen or held an actual Beatles record, Hall and Oates, oh God, Hall and Oates, Gershwin, all the Gershwin and Porter, all the Porter, and the list went on and on and on. I discovered so much music that day and in the years to come, all because, in a way, Johnny Cash unlocked that door. If it wasn't for that experience, I would have never become a lover of opera or learned that jazz was nothing to be afraid of. I wouldn't have understood the importance of Carnegie Hall or CBGB if I hadn't crossed paths with Johnny Cash's song this, on those cold winter months of 2000 in Chicago. Little did I know that day staring at the flaky and dusty spines of all those albums that I was looking into the future. I had no idea that so snowy Sunday that I would move that collection three times in six years, twice by hand and once by movers. Along with my colleague slash lover slash music friend whose record collection I have come to love as my own throughout the years, I have toiled many an hour flipping through its contents, brushing off something I hadn't seen before or something I recently read about, and I can find an example within the stacks that are contained within my own living room. Because, as it turned out, Johnny Cash was opening more than a door, more than just a door to a music lover in those days, but something even more significant. 13 years later, here in New York City, in Greenwich Village, under a cherry tree, I married that lover slash sound designer slash audiophile who's, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> wasn't expecting that, whose records and musical tastes pushed its way into my life in those moments of a long ago February. It's only now can I look back and realize the, in, the significance of Ring of Fire. It was in that instance, it unlocked so many doors within me, and I realized that Johnny Cash had the keys. Thank you. Fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames went higher, and it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire. Yes, Jason Jude Hill. And you know what? I've seen the record collection that he talks about in that story. It is glorious. And might I add, very well organized. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And listen, if you are in or near New York City Saturday night, April 4th, come see us live 
at QED Astoria. We've got storytellers Amber Dre and Matthew Trumbull on songs by Heart and the Rolling Stones. Plus, are you sitting down? I interview Shishi Valenti, creator of the legendary Night of a Thousand Stevies. This one might sell out. So grab a ticket now at QED's website. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher, and maybe, I don't know, the frozen food aisle at Trader Joe's. We gotta eat too. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening.